1927, Bath, Michigan was like many rural Midwestern towns. Electricity had not yet found its way to the small farming community, and the school still ran on a schedule that accommodated the planting and harvesting seasons when children were needed on the farms. They attended school from fall after harvesting until spring when it was time to plant again. Local sawmills ran on steam power, and the farms were animal-powered. But the community hubs, what brought everyone together, were the church and the school. Farming families were large, and the Bath Consolidated School Building housed more than a sixth of the entire population. Come back with me to 1927, the brink of the Great Depression, and learn about the shocking act of domestic terrorism that remains America's deadliest school massacre. Greetings and salutations. I'm your host, Marguerite, and welcome back to Scalawags, the podcast where I tell you a story about mendacious pettifoggers, pusillanimous scofflaws, and knavish skullduggery. In other words, historical crimes. This week is going to be rough. I'm not going to lie. It was hard to research, but it's an important story. We tend to view school massacres as a modern invention and the drastic increase in school shootings has made them feel almost commonplace. It's like they've lost their shock value. We've become numb. In a 2018 article published in Time Magazine by Joanne Cook, a trauma psychologist and a Yale professor, she says, quote, sadly, our ability to tune out really bad stuff is not news. This is true for trauma survivors as well as the rest of us. You can call this deficiency a self-protective tool or conditioned analgesia. But when we directly experience or witness emotionally overwhelming events, we get autonomically aroused. In order to dampen that arousal, our emotions get suppressed. This numbing to tragedies has been also called compassion fade and is likely one of the reasons for inaction by bystanders in the face of brutal events. This psychological process also happens with other terrible situations, such as the Syrian refugee crisis or during natural disasters, like wildfires and hurricanes. Numbing is very effective in the short run and may provide us the necessary pause, sometimes briefly diverting our attention away from major human tragedies can help us refresh and come back stronger and more focused. However, in the long run, the emotions people are trying to avoid, such as sadness and fear, may actually grow stronger. That is, unless dealt with, these emotions don't go away. They remain undigested and stuck like a bad meal. End quote. School bombings, unlike shootings, are relatively rare. But let's deal with that topic. 
first, as always, here are my sources. There is an extensive section on Andrew Kehoe in um, Murderpedia, and in particular, the photos. And I got to tell you, this one nearly broke me. And I'll explain why when we get in later. Next is an extremely well done book, Bath Massacre, America's First School Bombing by Arnie Bernstein. I learned of this book on the podcast Most Notorious. One of my favorite podcasts, the host interviews historical crime authors about their books and research. And I add so many books to my towering to-be-read pile thanks to this podcast. I heard um, Mr. Bernstein talking about his book and the process of meeting the people of Bath and writing it. And that was what really sparked my interest in this story. There is also a New York Post article by Todd Farley, published March of 2021, so very recent. There is an excellent 2017 article from Smithsonian Magazine by Lorraine Boissonal, the 1927 bombing that remains America's deadliest school massacre. And then in the, as well, there is an entire website dedicated to the disaster, bathschooldisaster.com, as well as a docuseries that they promote from that website. Bath Township had a consolidated school, meaning that the tiny one-room schools all around the region had been consolidated into a single school facility. Kindergarten through high school were in one building. The school had been built in 1922, and so in 1927, when our story takes place, it's still fairly new. Taxes are still needed to pay for the building which also had to be heated in the Michigan winters, as well as buses, which were particularly important in an area where many still did not own their own transportation. Then there was the matter of upkeep, uh, staff, teachers, and administration, both. Bath was only 300 people officially, but the school itself housed 314 children, because it included children from unincorporated areas outside the township. By the late 20s, the post-war boom in America had slackened and the economy was in a recession. We were just two years away from the free fall of 1929 and the Great Depression, but things were especially rough for farmers. Farmers always live on the edge of poverty. Farming is a gamble. Will the crops come in this year or will they be destroyed? You work and pray and hope that this harvest you have invested everything in will pay off. Sometimes it doesn't. The electrification of America allowed for mass production and the advent of the motorized vehicle meant that the reliance on the horse and mule had waned. Land that was previously used to house and feed these animals was freed for more crop production and tractors could work longer and harder than animals. This meant that there was actually a food surplus in the 20s, which contributed to falling prices for crops. 
And because wages were not keeping pace with mass production, supply exceeded demand. The U.S. wasn't the only one hit. This was a worldwide phenomenon. So in the mid-20s, England and Wales, uh, their unemployment was rising up to 70%. Men came home from World War I and they didn't have jobs. So while the decade started with a boom in the economy, it went rapidly downhill from there. And this caused the great strike in UK in 1926. Around this time, the US also suffered a major natural disaster, the Great Mississippi Flood. We're just six years after the Tulsa massacre and the trouble starts in the summer of 1926 when the rain came, swelling the tributaries of the Mississippi to record levels. And the rains didn't stop. It just kept on falling. By Christmas Day, the Cumberland River in Nashville hit a record high. Yes, I said it started in the summer. It's still raining by Christmas. And the rain just keeps on falling. What follows is the most destructive flood in U.S. history, with 27,000 square miles of the southeastern United States underwater. The Mississippi Delta was devastated as the levees along the river broke in at least 145 places, leaving 700,000 people homeless and doing about a billion dollars in damage. That's billion with a B in 1927. Ten states were affected, but Arkansas had it probably the worst with almost 14% of the state in the floodwaters. By April 15th of 1927, New Orleans was in danger. The skies had dumped another 15 inches of water in the last day, and the massive flooding upriver was headed their way. To try and avoid destroying the city, town bankers paid to have the Carnivon levee blown up by 30 tons of dynamite, flooding the St. Bernard and Plaque Mines parishes instead. These were less populated areas, but people did live there. These people were never compensated for the destruction of their homes and land. And it turns out it wasn't even necessary because the levee broke on its own in several other places upstream to disperse the water. Now, of the 700,000 people mentioned who were displaced, about 500,000 of them, that's half a million people, were Black Americans. They lost their homes, their places of employment, entire communities. Many of them were tenant farmers and working the land was all they had. They were then forced to live in segregated tent communities, which the Red Cross helped establish and the federal government didn't do anything for them in direct aid, nothing. None of the tent cities had good conditions, but at least the federal government did step in and try to manage the larger camps and help provide basic sanitation, food, and water. This was Her Herbert Hoover acting as the Secretary of Commerce, not yet the president, but this was done just before the elections and his actions were very popular. Now, the federal government did provide aids to the states to rebuild infrastructure like roads, but not to the people. And the black families were living in squalor. 
with mud floors, without basic necessities. The black tent cities were little more than work camps. People were forced to do manual labor in order to receive their daily food rations. Men were often forced to wear tags, proving that they had worked on the levees and in some cases to show, quote, which plantation they belonged to. Women had to work, have a working husband, or a letter of reference from a white person in order to receive food. According to a PBS documentary, Voices from the Flood from 2010, quote, the police were sent out into the Negro section to comb from the idlers the required number of workers, allegedly to unload supplies. Within two hours, the worst had happened. A Negro man had refused to come with the officer and the officer killed him, unquote. So the land of the Delta, which was largely an agricultural black workforce, was absolutely disenfranchised. And this is the moment when black Americans began to turn away from the Republican Party to which they had traditionally belonged. They felt betrayed by Hoover and his policies, and they joined the Great Migration North, especially to Chicago. And if you are thinking of the Led Zeppelin song, When the Levee Breaks, uh, that is absolutely about this flooding in the Mississippi Delta, but it's actually a cover of an old blues song from Memphis Minnie and Kansas Joe McCoy, who were a husband and wife duo that later divorced. Now in the White House, you have Calvin Coolidge, and after World War I's dubious leadership from Woodrow Wilson, that administration was followed by Warren G. Harding, who was nice and charming, but kind of dim. And he brought all his cronies to Washington with him. And his presidency was just plagued by massive scandals. Think of the Teapot Dome scandal in which the Secretary of the Interior was openly soliciting and accepting bribes. That's the Harding administration. Now, Harding died abruptly in 1923 at near the end of the ter- his term. And so the country turns to the vice president, Calvin Coolidge, who was kind of the anti-Harding. He was very respectable. They called him Silent Cal because he didn't say a whole lot. He really loved his wife, Grace. The interesting tidbit about old Silent Cal, um, he had a pet raccoon named Rebecca, and he used to walk her through the White House grounds after dark because that's what she liked. But he was a stolid, slow-moving man. His famous quote is, the business of America is business. He was very old-fashioned. And so in the 1924 election, he won in a landslide. This was the first presidential election where women could vote. He really subscribed to the idea that the government shouldn't interfere too much in, in activities. And then just after taking office, he suffered a horrible tragedy. His 16-year-old son, Calvin Jr., went out to play tennis and got a blister on his foot, which became infected. Modern antibiotics were not available. And by the time doctors realized what was wrong, Calvin Jr. was in full septic shock and he died. Calvin, who was really Coolidge Sr., was really devoted to his family. And he was plunged into a deep depression that he never fully recovered from. Now, he followed the idea that taxes should be cut and so should federal expenditures. 
And the prevailing idea was that this would stimulate the economy. And he followed through with that. So by 1927, when our story takes place, only the wealthiest 2% of Americans were paying federal taxes, but their tax rate was very happy. However, more taxes were being collected at the state and local level rather than the federal. This was by design. Now, Coolidge was also very opposed to farm subsidies, and so he was very unpopular in farming communities. The steepest criticism he faced, though, was his lack of response to the flooding. And he finally appointed Herbert Hoover to oversee the flood relief. Coolidge did speak out against racism and was in favor of creating a federal anti-lynching bill, repeatedly tried to get that to happen because while there were state laws against lynching on the books, they were seldom enforced, but Congress refused for the federal bill. Coolidge also gave a commencement speech at Howard University. He advocated for immigrants, and there were a lot of them in the wake of World War I. He advocated they should be respected and welcomed, but losing his son had taken a lot from him, and in 1928, he refused to run for a second term. Meanwhile, in Asia, Asia is suffering from the same issues and economic depressions as in the West. And the aggression there is coming from Japan instead of Germany. Immediately after World War I, China was ruled by bands of warlords after the breakdown of their government. And the Treaty of Versailles, which ended World War I, imposed Japanese rule on parts of China. And Japan was really enjoying playing imperialist along with the Western powers. They wanted all of the East. Now, in China, there was a lot of protest to that, obviously, and the rise of nationalism. China really felt betrayed by the Western powers in the Treaty of Versailles, and they were not wrong. Chiang Kai-shek and the Nationalist Party were eventually able to take control and unify China. But Chiang Kai-shek had used the communists to help him take over, but he knew better than to trust him. And after he had consolidated power in northern China, he became known as the Red General. U.S. and Britain were very concerned about their people there and their business interests. The Britain sent ships because there were a lot of anti-foreigner riots, which was making central China very dangerous for their people. British troops landed in Shanghai on February the 12th, and not too surprising, this is not popular in China. And on the 19th, there is a workers' strike to, pro to protest. In March, another protest is violently put down in Nanjing, and it erupted into rioting. And the British and American warships responded to the chaos by firing on the crowds. Around 40 people died in what became known as the Nanjing Incident, and both British and American forces ended up having to pay damages. Now, this is when Chiang Kai-shek turns on the Communist Party, believing they had a strong hand in all the behind-the-scenes dissonance, and he probably wasn't wrong. He certainly didn't like the way Russia was doing things, and he could tell that they thought they should have power in China. So he began purging anyone suspected of being a communist or sympathizing with them. When I say purging, I mean hunting them all down and slaughtering them. He also had, quote, undesirables, like people with drug addictions, killed. There were large massacres known as the White Terror in April of 1927. 
more than 12,000 people were killed in April in that one month. He famously said he would rather kill a thousand people than allow one communist to live. So it's fair to see that this is a time of violence and upheaval. The world is still reeling from World War I and it hadn't ever fully recovered. So this is where we're going to talk about a man named Andrew Kehoe. Andrew Kehoe's father was a man named Philip Kehoe. Philip Kehoe was an Irish Catholic immigrant whose family left the homeland due to the potato famine. Andrew Kehoe was his first son. There were two younger sisters and a younger brother, but Andrew was the first and he was the boy. He developed an early fascination with electricity and showed a real gift for machines. But he was also a loner who would rather tinker and build than play with the other children. Philip was a bit of a local character. He was very active in community affairs. He held some minor offices. He was extremely religious. One of the, the Kehoe daughters even entered a convent. And Philip had firm ideas about the farming business and he could be ruthless and hard-nosed. But he had an opinion on everything. We all know someone like that. But especially Philip had opinions on taxes and fiscal oversight of the government. It really sounds like it was just his hobby horse and he was ready to saddle up and ride that topic without any encouragement. And his views made a deep impact on Andrew, as we will see. Another thing that marked Kehoe's early life was his mother's illness. She was frequently bedridden, and by the time he turned 18, that, quote, wasting illness proved fatal. 60-year-old Philip Kehoe remarried before long, a woman who was even younger than Andrew Kehoe, named Frances. And Andrew and Frances hated each other. He quickly left to attend Michigan State College and study electrical engineering, but he didn't graduate. At some point, he left and went to a school in St. Louis to study. However, he was involved in some sort of incident where he was knocked unconscious by an electric current. We don't know the specifics, but he was apparently in a coma for two weeks, which sounds like a head injury to me. After that, uh, Andrew couldn't settle down and he sort of knocked about before he returned home in 1905. Francis and Philip had a three-year-old daughter by that point and things weren't any better between Andrew and Francis. But he still moved in and went back to work on the family farm. Andrew had expected as the eldest son to inherit the farm that now there's a new wife and a little sister there just as Philip was in failing health. He had terrible arthritis and required two canes to get around. One of the tasks that Andrew had undertaken was clearing the fields and this required removing troublesome tree stumps and boulders with dynamite and pyrotol, which was another explosive. And he turned out to be pretty good with the explosives. September 17, 1911, everything changed. Francis went to start the stove for the new meal 
but as she touched the pilot light with her match, there was an explosion and she was engulfed in flames. Instead of smothering the flames, Andrew Kehoe did the one thing you shouldn't do with a petroleum-based fire and he dumped a pitcher of water on her. This actually spreads the oil in a thin layer, actually spreading the fire. And Philip, who could barely walk at this point, struggles toward Francis as Andrew stood by for a while before putting out the fire. Francis was horribly burned over her entire body. Her skin was blackened and the meat of her muscles was roasted to the bone, yet she was alive and suffering. The family had no phone, and so Kehoe went to the neighboring farm and knocked on the door. His neighbor always recalled that it was a polite, unhurried tap, not pounding, and when she answered, there was no alarm in Andrew Kehoe. He asked her to call a doctor, and she asked him if someone was ill, and he said, nonchalantly no but franny got burned oh and maybe she should call a priest as well of course poor francis died of her gruesome injuries seven months later kehoe courted and married Nellie price a farmer's daughter he had met during his time in university and he brought her back to the farm philip was bedridden at this point and his health rapidly deteriorated in just a few years he was also dead, and Andrew inherited the farm. It wasn't until years later that everyone wondered if the explosion in the kitchen had really been an accident. Kehoe and Nellie attended the local Catholic church until the original church had to be torn down, and everyone was expected to pay a fee for the rebuilding of the new church. Kehoe refused and ordered the clergy from his property. He refused to set foot in the new building and ordered his wife not to attend as well. In 1917, Nellie's uncle, who had inherited the 86-acre farm where Nellie was raised in Bath, Michigan, the uncle had inherited it when he passed away. And this was a healthy, thriving property. So Kehoe sold his family farm and he and Nellie moved there to Bath. That's 1917, and Kehoe arranged to buy the farm for $12,000 from the estate. He paid $6,000 down from the sale of his own farm and agreed to a schedule of regular mortgage payments. Remember this detail because it's going to become important. Kehoe made some waves in the little community. First, in a place where men, men still worked the soil with oxen and horses, he arrived with a shiny new tractor. He didn't own a truck, but he had a tractor. And he also worked wearing a full suit. A suit with a vest and shine shoes. He had to get him he had to get a neighbor to drive him places or pick up groceries for him, and they were willing to do so because at first he was considered nice, if a little odd. His farm was meticulous. Every tool was kept in pristine condition and put in its place. He set about clearing the fields of every stump or boulder, blasting the offending items with dynamite and pyrotol. And he was, again, really good at it. So good, in fact, that he became everyone's go-to for blasting. Need some dynamite? Go see Kehoe. Want to hire someone to blow crap up? Kehoe was your guy. He involved himself in the local farm bureau and was respected for his mechanical expertise. 
Kehoe had learned well from his father's constant rants about taxation and the public duty to account for every single penny. So he ran for the school board. Now, the man he ran against was named Enos Peacock. And Peacock was supposedly a very responsible trustee. But Kehoe led a group of men to run for the trustee positions, claiming it was time for new blood. Get rid of the old boys network. You know, drain the swamp. Some were elected, and Kehoe got himself named treasurer. This position was for three years, so it would expire in July 1927. After he was sworn in, though, things began to go sideways pretty quickly. These meetings could be contentious anyway, but Kehoe just turned that up to 11. He wanted the school's superintendent, Emery Hike, banned from attending the meetings. However, this is against the law, but Hike and Kehoe were hostile to one another, and Kehoe would fight over every penny. He wanted salaries cut, especially Hike's, and if things weren't going his way during a board meeting, he would immediately move that they adjourn. He stepped into the shoes of the town clerk when she unexpectedly passed away. But then the position was filled and his services were no longer needed. He started running for other offices, but his confrontational demeanor did him no favors and he was soundly defeated for all of them. Kehoe kept the books for the school and as he wasn't everything, he was meticulous. They balanced to the penny, but he fought against every expenditure from buying books to the children to providing the buses. He wanted one of the bus drivers fired, and when he wasn't, the driver would then see Kehoe every single day as he picked up and delivered the children. Kehoe would stand out there by the road and check his watch to see if the driver was the slightest bit late. Every single day. The man took Hetty to new levels. One way that Kehoe could help the school save money was by doing maintenance and electrical jobs for the school. So he knew every bit of that three-level school right down to the boiler room. One of his duties was handing out the employee paychecks, and he did this by hand, one at a time, walking the halls of the school room to room, where he would frequently forget to bring Superintendent Emery Hike, his paycheck, forcing Hike to seek Kehoe out and ask for his money. Now, this is where I'm going to give a content warning. As you know from the intro, we are going to be talking about the deaths of children, but I also want to give you a content warning for animal abuse. Kehoe was known to be abusive to animals. He worked his horses to death, literally. He is also suspected of killing his neighbor's dog that he didn't like. There's a story of him buying some cows and then putting them out on a green clover pasture. The pasture was too wet and the cows became sick. He told them to, he took them to be butchered, sold the hides, and then he went back to the man who had sold him the cows and demanded half the money back because they died. 
Surprisingly, Kehoe got along okay with his neighbors. They thought he was an oddball and certainly miserly, yet he would spend extravagantly on his machinery and clothing. He still dressed in full suit to work on the farm, and when he got dirty, he would go inside and change his shirt. But he had gradually stopped a lot of his other activities. He sold off the chickens because Nellie, his wife, became extremely ill and she couldn't do much. Then he stopped working the farm altogether. He left his crop out in the fields to rot. Nellie was in and out of the hospital in the summer of 1926. And Kehoe, who still didn't have a truck, relied on neighbors for transportation. He asked Job Slight, a man who often ran errands for folks, if he would drive Kehoe up to Jackson to pick up some pyrotol, and he wanted a lot of it, like 500 pounds. Slight thought this was odd because it wasn't necessary to go all the way to Jackson, over two hours each way, just to get some pyrotol to blast a few stumps. He could get it at the Army surplus, but then Kehoe was a weird dude, so Slight took him to get pyrotol. Also, four boxes of blasting caps, which would set it off. Slight commented how much pyrotol that was, and Kehoe said oh, he was happy to share. If anyone needed some, they could get it from him for only a little more than he had paid for it. However, when he was asked by several men for some, Kehoe claimed he had already used it all up. Finally, Kehoe bought himself a flatbed cord. After that, his comings and goings are harder to track. But according to the inquest, at the same time he used up the pyrotol, he made some additions to the ceiling in the basement of the school. Remember the mortgage on that farm? Kehoe made mortgage payments until March 1921, and then he stopped paying. The estate did nothing until 1922, then politely inquired as to when he would resume the payments. He replied curtly that he couldn't afford it, and the estate granted a year's extension. The next year, same thing. He just demanded to know if he was going to be evicted, but the state wasn't about to do that. They just wanted the key host to resume some sort of payment. This continued through August of 1925, when the estate finally dispersed the majority of the uncle's estate. Nellie and Andrew Kehoe arrived to pick up the check from the attorney who represented the estate. He gave them the check for $1,200 and they took it and left without a word about the mortgage. Then March 1926, the estate had another disbursement and this time Nellie was due $500. Since Kehoe still hadn't paid anything, the attorney applied to fund applied the funds to the mortgage and then sent a letter explaining. Nellie thanked him and asked how much they owed now. She said her husband was super busy, but he would be coming by to talk to the attorney about their debt very soon. Well, instead, Kehoe hired an attorney and he sued the estate for the $500. They all went to a probate judge who agreed that, yes, it wasn't proper for the attorney to have done that. The judge said he also thought, though, it was in everyone's best interest. And Nellie said that she thought it was okay. But Andrew Kehoe insisted that Nellie be written a check for $500 right then and there. And she acquiesced to her forceful husband 
they took the money and paid nothing towards the mortgage. Finally, the attorney representing the estate had enough and began foreclosure proceedings, but Nellie's relatives were distressed. The attorney assured them that he wasn't really going to evict the family. He just needed a fourth keyhole to discuss the debt and start settling up with some sort of payment. But upon learning how ill Nellie really was, the attorney tried to notify the sheriff, not even serve foreclosure notice, but it was too late. The sheriff had already brought it. Kehoe just looked at the papers, sneered that it was school taxes that kept him from making payments, and did nothing. While Kehoe couldn't afford his mortgage, he apparently could afford more dynamite and blasting caps because he made repeated trips to Lansing to buy them. He didn't sell his machinery, even though he wasn't working the land. He did buy sell some of the buildings, and he kept buying firearms and ammo. New Year's Eve, 1926, right at midnight, explosions rocked back. They came from the Kehoe place. And when he left about he had to cover to go off at midnight just to see if it would work. And it did. April 30th, 1927, was the Everett Mine disaster. At that time, an explosion roared through the federal number three mine owned by the New England Fuel and Transportation Company of Everettville, Mongolia County. The explosion, the subsequent fire, and the gas in the mine killed 111 men, and this was the story that was dominating the news at that time, along with the aftermath of the Great Flood. Now, Bath, Michigan is, was a blink and you'll miss it place. So nobody was thinking about that place at the end of April. Welcome to Not an Ad Break, where instead of discount codes for meal services or luxury linens, you get a word of the week. This week, our word is poppycock, means foolish words or ideas from 1865 American English, probably from the Dutch dialect word papakak, which comes from two words, cap or papa which some theorize means the same thing as chewed up food for babies, and caca, which means caca. So put them together and you get poo, that is like porridge, porridgey poo. That's one theory. Another theory is that the pap was from puppet or doll, whereas actually there is a Dutch idiom that uses pepakak to mean pretty much porcelain doll excrement that something is fine as porcelain doll excrement and it was tied to meaning that somebody possessed excessive religious zeal uh, you got me anyway the idiom morphed as they often do to become poppycock and was tied in particular to bible thumping preachers who spouted nonsense 
either way, it's all poppycock. Now, back to our collective depression. By May 1927, the school year was winding down. It would be Kehoe's last. His school board position would expire July 1927. This is when the school janitor, a man named Frank Smith, discovered that the lock to the school's back door was broken. It had been broken so badly that Kehoe removed it and said he was sending it off to Lansing to be repaired. Smith also noticed odd signs that someone was entering the school, including trap doors in the basement that were left open. May 14th, a construction crew working near Bath reported a large amount of dynamite missing. May 15th, Nellie was back in the hospital with her illness. At this point, she was so ill that she was completely bedridden. May 15th, Nellie was back in the hospital with her illness. At this point, she was so sick that she was completely bedridden. She had horrible coughing fits. It was some sort of lung congestion, probably a tuberculosis. But Kehoe was called to the hospital and he was told she was ready to come home. He said he would pick her up on the 16th, which he did. He took her over to see her sisters and they all reported that he seemed in great spirits. Well, May 17th, Nellie's sisters called to check on her, and Kehoe said he had taken Nellie over to visit friends. The sisters were surprised and pleased because she hadn't been able to do that sort of thing for some time. That same day, one of Kehoe's neighbors noticed him stuffing the chicken coop with straw, which he thought was odd because he knew that the Kehoes didn't have chickens anymore. That same night, a student was leaving the school late after the school orchestra had played for a PTO meeting. He noticed someone standing out front, just staring at the school. He passed the man and realized it was Andrew Kehoe. Kehoe didn't even acknowledge the boy just remained out there in the dark, staring up at the school. May 18th, there were two days left of the school year. It started as a stormy day. Kehoe was up at daybreak to deliver a box to the railway station with instructions that it be delivered by B. Smith, an insurance agent who worked with the school district. The train conductor wasn't bothered that the lettering on the box said explosives. Everyone knew Kehoe was cheap. He was just reusing what he had. Kehoe was contacted regarding an issue the well pump was having at the school. Frank Smith, the janitor and another school board trustee, met Kehoe there and later remarked that Kehoe was agitated and kept checking his watch. Finally, he declared that he was in a hurry and he left. It was 7.25 a.m. Soon the children were arriving. They were very excited with just two days left. Parents bid them goodbye with promises to see them at the end of the day. A group of senior boys played baseball outside. Josephine Cushman dropped her little brother Ralphie off at the school. 
She offered to walk him in, but at seven, he couldn't imagine anything more embarrassing. Instead, she went off to pick flowers with some other girls. Like the boys playing baseball, the older girls were done with their exams. The fifth and the sixth graders switched floors due to the exam schedules. This meant the fifth graders were on the second floor and the sixth graders were on the they passed each other on the stairs on their way to their new rooms. 8.45, the school was in full swing when an explosion ripped apart the school. At the same moment, another series of explosions set the keyhole property on fire. The barn and chicken coops both burst into flames and smoke billowed from the windows of the house. Nearby, the school houses and buildings had windows blown out, ceiling fixtures crashed, the northern wing of the school actually lifted up into the air before crashing down. The walls buckled in, the ceilings collapsed down on the second floor, the ceiling collapsed down onto the second floor, and that second floor crushed the first floor. Because the fifth and sixth graders had just swapped places, those sixth graders would suffer a terrible death toll because the first floor got the worst. Miraculously, the entire school, although it was wired, did not explode. Part of the wiring malfunctioned. Otherwise, there was enough dynamite and pyrotol in the school to have taken out a large portion of the town. Instead, there were children and teachers who did escape. Eight-year-old Cleo Clayton leapt from a window and ran to the front of the school. Some of the survivors were trapped. Others were able to stagger out, so covered in debris that they looked like ghosts. The dust hung in the air like a fog. From all over the town, people heard the massive boom and they came running. Josephine Cushman and the other girls picking flowers ran back to the school. The boys, who had played baseball only moments before, picked themselves up off the ground. Carrie Hart, a 17-year-old who had dropped out of school to work his family harm, hurried back because he had three younger siblings in the school. The frantic cries of the trapped children and the desperate parents mingled in the thick air. Back at the Kehoe farm, neighbors rushed to see what was going on. In addition, electricity had been on its way to the town and there were construction workers nearby erecting poles. They ran to the house, peering in the smoky windows and what they saw Blood. The house was packed with enough dynamite to blow the entire town off the map. They directed the neighbors away and fled. Instead of going to the school and see what they could do there, no one saw Andrew or Nellie Kehoe. Superintendent Emery Hike, who had arrived shortly after the blast, immediately took part in recovery efforts. Incredibly, Janitor Frank Smith, who had been in a nearby shed, found the surviving first and second graders lining up outside as if in a fire drill. They had practiced it so much, and in a real emergency, practice had kicked in, so he led them to safety. But other scenes were much grimmer. Children's bodies were flung around like rattles. One hung outside the walls, her feet caught in the rubble. Around 230 children had been inside the school. Almost every family had at least one child in the school, and they had all come to the scene to help. Word spread quickly, and a assistance arrived from Lansing. 
the Lansing Fire Department arrived, people on the way to the school noticed a Ford truck also racing to the scene, but the driver seemed strangely excited with a bizarre grin on his face. Andrew Kehoe was on his way. The Michigan DPS and the local American Red Cross branch all responded. Children and teachers, both living and dead, were pulled from the road. Some were horribly injured. Nearby homes became makeshift hospitals. Bodies were laid out on the grass beside the school. Kehoe drove around the emergency vehicles right to the front of the school, joining a line of cars. He leaned out and called Emery Hike over. Hike put a foot up on the running board. To him, it probably seemed entirely normal for school board members to arrive like that. Word hadn't trickled through to the school yet about Kehoe's farm being on fire and filled with dynamite. But something in Kehoe's manner must have alarmed Hike because he started to recoil. Then Hike drew in a rifle and he fired one shot into his truck. The truck exploded, ripping apart Kehoe and Hike, sending metal shards in all directions. The truck blast injured many grievously. Harry Hart, the teenager who had run to help rescue his three younger siblings, suffered a terrible injury to his ankle. Several parents suffered horrible wounds and tragically, Eight-year-old Cleo Clayton, the little one who had survived the initial blast and jumped out the window to safety, suffered fatal injuries from the flying metal. But it took him seven hours to die. One man was killed instantly, and another, Glenn Smith, the brother of Frank Smith, the, the janitor, suffered injuries that caused him to bleed to death in front of his brother while he was aware and conscious of what was happening to him. Josephine Cushman, also hurt in the second blast, would not be able to receive the news until later about seven-year-old Ralph, who was too brave to be escorted by his big sister. He didn't survive. Neither did all three of Perry Hart's younger siblings. I highly recommend the book that I listed under the sources for the stories of the children and the survivors. And I mentioned how difficult Murderpedia was. There's an entire section there dedicated to the pictures and the stories of the young victims. And it contains all the obituaries. And it was a heartbreaking, heartbreaking read. But I would encourage you to spend a few minutes getting to know who some of them were. Now at 10.45 a.m., Rescuers found that the building was still full of dynamite wire to blow. Wires had been stapled along the ceiling to hide them, and Russ indicated they had been there for some time. This wasn't something that Kehoe had rigged in a day, a week, or even a month. He had been planning his murderous destruction for probably more than a year and had set it to go off when the school would be full if all the dynamite had detonated, every single child and teacher would have died. For now, rescue efforts had to be halted until the site could be secured. They didn't know if there was another clock ticking away ready to blow up the rescuers. An estimated 100 pounds of 
explosives had already detonated, but another 504 pounds were found unexploded. The fire was put out at Kehoe's place and the fire department proceeded with caution. The destruction was complete. The house, barn, and all other structures were gutted. In the barn's remains, to their horror, they found the remains of the horses, which had all been tied and hobbled deliberately so that they could not escape. Hanging from a fence, a hand-stenciled sign read, Criminals are made, not born. We have talked about psychopaths on this show before. Some modern psychologists prefer the term prefer the term antisocial personality disorder, and certainly we see some of the hallmark traits here, especially an inflated sense of self, a lack of empathy or remorse, violence to animals, superficial charm, and an arrogance that leads to perceived injustices whenever somebody doesn't get their way. The children said that Kehoe had always been nice to them. Even the day before he was to murder them, he was there smiling and waving. But because psychopaths are so inherently selfish, they have no trouble leading a parasitic lifestyle and feel entitled to whatever they get. A good example is Kehoe's refusal to make any payments or even attempts to settle the mortgage while at the same time losing for money that he was owed. In the aftermath of the disaster, MetLife waived their formalities and paid all claims immediately. Fundraising began to build a new school and graduation was canceled because no one had the heart for it. Graduates were given diplomas with no fanfare and the box labeled explosives that was sent to the insurance man. It was then treated as if it was a bomb. But once opened, it contained the school ledger and a note from Kehoe to prove that he had balanced the books to a penny. That was the legacy he wanted to leave. Near the chicken coop in a makeshift wheelbarrow and covered with a tarp, the charred remains of Nellie Kehoe were found. For days, people had passed by not knowing what was crumpled underneath the covers. Her head had been crushed in and some bones were broken, although the remains were so charred that they could not determine if the injuries were the cause of the death or a byproduct of the fire and explosions. But she certainly didn't hide her body there. And she had never gone to visit friends. And although mourned by her sisters, she was one of the forgotten victims of her husband's rampage. But her sisters, claimed Nellie, and they buried her with her maiden name on her tombstone. And then because people suck, the sightseers came. Long streams of cars drove past Kehoe's farm and up to the school. They got out and tramped around, taking bits and bobs as souvenirs until the state police had to come and restore order. There was difficulty in arranging the funerals. The final death toll was 45, including Kehoe, but 38 were children. Another 55 were grievously injured, and with so many to bury, the funeral home had to bury them in ships. The Reverend McDonald did his best to help grieving families, but it was difficult when one of the children being buried was his own daughter. He did not officiate the funerals. The KKK 
used the tragedy to publish tweets blaming Kehoe's actions on his being Catholic. The news was everywhere. You couldn't escape it in the nation. And then a few days later, an obscure airmail pilot named Charles Lindbergh made the first non-stop flight from New York City to Paris, May 20th through the 21st. Lindbergh covered the 33 and a half hour flight alone in a purpose-built single-engine Ryan monoplane, the spirit of St. Louis. And the media had something new and exciting to talk about, relegating the Bath tragedy to a footnote. Fifty years later, there would be a commemoration and the surviving seniors and graduates from 1927 received their diploma person in a ceremony. So May 18th, 1927 is still the deadliest school massacre. 38 elementary school children death, another 55 injured. The Virginia Tech shooting is second and Sandy Hook is the third deadliest. Next week, we are going to take a break from the child murder to take a tour through some medical quackery that, of course, ends in death for some. As always, you can reach me at marguerite.writes at gmail.com. You can find pictures on my Pinterest board at Marguerite Says and also my Facebook page, The Scalawags Podcast. And on my brand new website, thescalawagspodcast.com. Most of all, if you are enjoying the podcast, please hit subscribe and give me a rating. But until next time, get out there and make some history of your own.